Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Paul is coming to the end of his letter, Epistle to the Roman Church, or the churches that were at Rome, and uh, we get this passage. It is part of that sort of unbelievable portion from 12 through 15. But in the beginning of the 15th chapter, the opening paragraph, we who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of building up the neighbor. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I wonder if any any of the preachers here have ever preached on that. I've never preached on it. And uh, I've never heard a sermon on it. But he's coming to the end of his epistle. And, you know, I have the feeling that uh, as he gets to the end, he wants to clinch a few things. So let me read it again and just stick it in the back of your mind for a while before we get back to it. We who are strong ought to put up with the failings of the weak. He's talking to the church. And not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbor for the good purpose of the edification, the building up of the neighbor. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. After the Second World War, when uh, the world was still reeling with uh, the knowledge of the Holocaust in Germany, we became aware of some people who lived through that and came out almost victoriously. All who did were unusual people. And one of the most unusual was a woman by the name of Corrie Ten Boom. 
I want to remind you, those who've read it and those who haven't read it, I want to share with you the conclusion of the book. The war is over with, and she is circulating in Christian circles with a message of forgiveness, that Christians have to live forgiving. And so she, who suffered so much, during the Holocaust in a prison camp and concentration camp in Germany, that she had to forgive and God had given her grace to forgive. She is in a church service in Munich and she says, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. Now, you know, they would strip the women, and the men would stand, the SS troopers would leer, and these women, the humiliation of it. And the man who stood guard at the door while that was taking place, there he stood in front of her, in the Munich church where she just preached on forgiveness. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly, it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, and my sister's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to the people, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered, it is not on our forgiveness, 
any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command the love itself. Now let me reread this last, these last three sentences. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. It took a lot of love. Now, I've come to the conclusion that that is an appropriate conclusion to a commentary on the book of Romans. And I think that some way or other we have read the book of Romans in the context of the Reformation and justification by faith was such a key thing that we've understood Romans as being a treatise in which you come to a climax on teaching the key to the book, which is justification by faith, which takes care of me. And then, from then on, it's either a plateau or sort of a downward descent, and when you get to the last five chapters, 12 through, uh, 12, 13, 14, the last four particularly, 12 through 15, that's sort of, well, now that you're justified, here's the way you ought to act. But you will notice that what she's saying is, it is as impossible to act the way God wants us to act as it is for us to save ourselves. And so what you have in the last of those four chapters is sort of the clinching thing on the fact that salvation, all of it, is by faith, by grace through faith. And it is he who saves. There is no, there is no salvation in us, and there is no holiness in us. It is in him, and if we have it, it comes from him. Now, uh, you know, there are other people who've had experiences like that. I uh, remember reading, if you've never talked with Paul about this, you ought to ask him sometime about uh, the uh, influence of Jake DeShazer's witness. He knows Jake DeShazer personally. You'll remember that Jake DeShazer was one of Doolittle's raiders. And uh, he landed in China and was thrown into prison by the Japanese. And it was a very brutal experience. They would uh, want to get clean after they had done a little exercise where they had got mud on them. And so the, the Japanese would say, and in the snowbank, wash your feet with the snow. And so they had no shoes, so they had to do all of this barefooted in that kind of context. And then as they came back into their prison cell, the prison guard who was over uh, Jake, when he got to the, he was in a hurry, and he kept saying, hurry up, hurry up. And so when they got to the prison cell, he pulled the cumbersome metal door open part way and started to shove Jake DeShazer through. 
And as he started to shove him through, Jake's foot got caught in between the metal door and the metal frame of the door. And uh, then the, the Japanese guard started kicking with his boot, Jake's bare foot, pushing him through. Jake just recently had been converted. And Jake said, I found all of that resentment and that hatred moving up in me. And then he said, an inner voice said, you can't do that. And he said, I began to say, God, then you have to do something for me. And he said, it was interesting. God began to put a deep love in my heart for these Japanese guards. And a deep love for the Japanese people. He said, they need to know the one that I found, found in a prison camp. And so, you will remember, he went back to Japan as a missionary. Now, Jake about as humble a guy as you could ever meet. But uh, he was the means of leading the leader of the group of planes that uh, bombed Pearl Harbor. He was the one who led that guy to Christ. Uh, but what was it? It was this kind of love that isn't, uh, uh, that isn't the natural way that we live and that we act. Uh, I read years ago a biography of an American missionary to India by the name of George Bowen. I'd be interested. Anybody here know the name of George Bowen? George Bowen was a student about 1840 in the 1840s in Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And he had an experience which he called sanctification. And it transformed his life. He, uh, it's interesting, his biography was written by Robert E. Spear. Now, the library at Princeton Theological Seminary is the Robert E. Spear Library because Robert E. Spear was the greatest missionary statesman that the Presbyterian Church ever produced. And he found George Bowen later as a missionary, as an American in India. He was living as an Indian would live at an Indian standard of living. He wrote for the Bombay Guardian, and he peddled scriptures. He was not a great preacher, had a high sort of weak voice, but he'd move out among the Hindus and the others selling scriptures. And as he did, it's a priceless passage where he's writing his sister. And as he writes her, he tells about how they mobbed him. <laughs> they stripped his Bible from him, tore him up in his presence. They beat him, they pummeled him. They just drove him, and as he moved away from them, a Parsi shopkeeper saw what was happening. He was not a Hindu, and so he reached out and grabbed George Bowen and pulled him into his shop to protect him. And so he had a little surcease from his problem. And then he thought, I need to go out again, and so he went out, and they were waiting for him. And as they mobbed him, he was finally able to extract himself after being pummeled mercilessly and stoned, and he wrote to his sister, but he said, I felt nothing but peace. 
You know, as I thought of those illustrations, <laughs> I remembered an OMS missionary by the name of Bill Gillum. Some, for some reason, his family gave me his Greek New Testament. I still got it, and I read it regularly out of Bill Gillum's Greek New Testament. The interesting thing is, he devoured the book of Romans. He's got it underlined, marked all the way through. It's the most used section of the book, interestingly enough. But I can remember when Bill Gillum came home. He was a senior in seminary when I was a freshman in college. Had an incredibly beautiful tenor voice. And he was a great musician. He could play an accordion like nobody's business. And he'd move up and down the rivers in Colombia with that accordion and play Spanish music and got the crowd and then they preached to them. He was stoned. Those were the days of brutal hostility between the Roman Catholics and the Protestants. And he got caught in that. And I remember he came home from his first term. And the time came for him to go back. And I'll never forget him telling. And he said I was in panic and total terror. Go back. I knew what I faced. I knew I might get killed. Worse than just dying, I might have to suffer mercilessly. And he said, everything within me recoiled. I don't want to go back to that. And he said, I got down on my knees finally and said, God, can you do something for me? And he said, he did. And he said, a joy came and an anticipation. And life was not the problem. Faithfulness was the problem. And the opportunity of sharing the knowledge of Christ. And Bill Gillum was one of the most effective Protestant missionaries, I suspect, in the history of South America. He died relatively young from cancer, but was an incredible witness. Now let me ask you, is that exceptional Christianity? Or is that supposed to be normal Christianity? I thought of this when Ken was talking about real Christianity and Wesley's commitment to real Christianity. Now, I want to look at the book of Romans with this in mind. And so I'm going to sort of hop, skip, and jump through. But there is a stream that runs through, and I have missed it. I'm astounded at how slow I've been to see the stream that runs through it and the theme. You know, one of the things that we forget is that Paul didn't write the book of Romans. He dictated it. Now, the fact that he dictated it meant that he could never correct a line that he wrote. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to give anything to anybody that's serious, uh, <laughs> I sent a letter off to another guy the other day about a third party, and I said, see if there's anything in this that needs to be corrected in any way that would convey something wrong. He sent it back to him and said, it's a very good letter. You just need to read it again. <laughs> And I read it again, and I found uh, the mistakes that were in it that needed to be corrected. I noticed that I will start writing, and uh, and I've gotten to the place where I can use the computer, and as I do, and it's far better than by hand, 
I can, I can, you know, make the changes without starting a new, I used to, you know, I have to start all over again every time. But you can, you can make the changes with it there in front of you. So I, I find myself that the first time through is always miserable. But then I correct and read a little, write, and write a little, work on it, and then work on it again. I may work on it ten times or fifteen. And when I get through, it sounds halfway decent. Now, Paul never had that privilege. So you've got him speaking off as it were, as it is off the cuff as he gives this thing. And so it does not write, read like a carefully logical thing. But if you will read it carefully, you will notice there, there's a theme that runs through it. And, uh, it may, uh, it may shift a little here and there, but that theme runs through it very steadily. Now, uh, let me uh, deal with chapters 12 through 15 first. You, uh, if you look at 3 through 8, you'll find that what he's saying is, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Now, that's nice. A nice thought, isn't it? I think he expected that to be true among Christians. There's a fascinating similarity between Romans 12 to 15 and Philippians 2, where you get the story of the mind of Christ. Because you will remember that in the passage on the mind of Christ, we always go to verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. But do you know what went right before it? Paul speaks and says, Do nothing out of self-interest or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. The proper way to look at anybody else is this way, not this way. And above all, not this way. Paul says the proper way to look at everybody is this way. Okay, Uh but in humility regard others as better than yourself. But now catch this. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Don't look to your own interest, but look to the interest of others. Now, you know, that's radical. Do you know how radical it is? It's so radical that the translators until the 20th century couldn't translate it correctly. Because if you get the King James, you know what it'll say? It will say, let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. <laughs> and so, the text sanctifies the privilege of taking care of number one, but the Greek does not say that. We've had trouble translating the New Testament because the gospel is so radical. But Paul is saying, I want you to be like Jesus. Let his mind be in you. And what is that mind? It's a mind where each does not look to his own interest, but he looks to the interest of others. If Jesus had looked to his own interest, you and I wouldn't be sitting here today. Okay. Now, so Paul starts with this sort of innocuous, uh, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And the paragraph is on the body of Christ. Lose yourself in the body. 
And if you have a gift, use your gift in the body. But the only way you can be worthwhile is to be a part of the body. You don't prophesy off in isolation. You don't do works of mercy off in isolation. You find your place in the body, and that's more important than you yourself. Then you come to verse 9 of chapter 12. And our texts say, I'm reading from the NRSV, verse 9 says, Let love be genuine. Uh, the King James says, Let your love be without dissimulation. Who's got another translation? What does the NIV say? Let your love be sincere. Now I want to tell you about that verse. You see, when he says, let your love, let love be without dissimulation. The word, Greek word is on hypocritus. Don't let there be any hypocrisy in your love. Let it be real, genuine. It's not a game. It's not a fake. You're not doing something to appear nice. It's coming out of your soul and it's re it's who you are. The interesting thing is that there's no verb in the Greek. The text actually says, hey, agape, love. On without pretense, without appearance, show, without hypocrisy. But now you know what we do? We translate it, let love. Now what does the word, verb, what does the word let mean? Immediately you've made a hortatory imperative out of it. And so what you're saying is, Paul is saying, let your love be without hypocrisy. That is the exact reverse of what he's saying. Because what he's saying is, love doesn't have any hypocrisy in it. Did you notice the conclusion of uh, Corey Ten Boom? So I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, love itself. Now, you know, when you say, let love be without dissimulation, where is the monkey? It's on my back. But the one thing I can never do is show divine agape love. Because there is something about human love that cares about itself. That's not wrong. That's not evil. God made us that way. There is such a thing, if you'll let me use strange language, as sanctified eros. And so you love your children, and God smiles. Well, what do you get out of your love for your children? Why do you love them? They belong to you. Do you have a different relationship with them, with the nasty kid down the street? Well, yes, you do, and you should have, and it is right. Or to the kid down the street who may be a model of everything. Your relationship to your wife, your love. You have a friendship. And friendships are very sacred. The older I get, the more sacred friendships become. And they're gifts, they're divine gifts. A friendship is a divine gift. But you see, why do you have a friend? Why do I have a friend with a certain person? 
there's a certain affinity between us. But that is not what Paul is talking about. What he's talking about is the love that exists between the three persons of the Holy Trinity. And what is it? Where each one cares more about the other than he does himself, and he doesn't love the other person because of what he is, he loves because of who he is. And so, we have trouble with this biblical message on love. So we get down to verse 10. He says, love one another. Outdo each other in your love for each other. Bless those who persecute you. Do not curse. Choose the humble thing, not the high thing. But bless those who persecute you. Never return evil for evil. Verse 19, never avenge yourselves. If your enemy is hungry, what do you do? Feed him. If he's thirsty, what do you do? You give him drink, your enemy. And then he says in 13a, Oh, no man anything but to love one another. Because love fulfills the law. And then he says, you see, the reason is we don't live to ourselves. We live to another. We live to God. Now, what is uh, George Bowen in the midst of a mob, a Hindu mob in India doing? He's, uh, he's not there for himself. He's there because Christ has done something in his heart so rich that he says, I cannot live if I cannot share this with others. I cannot live if I cannot share this with others. He's not there to impose an alien religion on these Hindus. He's there to share with them the thing that means so much to him and that their own hearts cry for because he knows their hearts are just like his. Their hearts were made by the same God. So he says, we do not live to ourselves. So he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you, isn't that an interesting text? Why do you need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Because you don't have it in you. (laughs) And if here's the standard and it's not in me, how am I going to get there? I got to put him on. And if I put him on, then then it's possible for me to be like Corey Ten Boom, to meet the person everything within you would hate. But you see, between you and him, there Jesus is because you put him on. And so he responds, and you choose, shall I respond with Jesus or shall I respond against Jesus? But you see, the key is in Jesus, it's not in us. Okay, he says, uh, make no provision for the self. That's 1314. Make no provision for the flesh. Now, what is the flesh? I love uh, Bishop uh, Newbegin, Leslie Newbegin's definition of the flesh. It is life-oriented around itself. It is self-orientation. And you see, that's the exact opposite of what he just said. We don't live to ourselves. The flesh, the sark, lives to itself. And so he says, we don't live that way anymore because we've put on Christ. 
And so he says, make no provision for the flesh. Then you come down to 13.10. Do not hurt your brother who has a scruple against eating meat. Now, if you like meat and think God made it and it's perfectly good, and your neighbor, it's a stumbling block for him. You know how radical Paul says this? I won't eat any meat if it's going to offend my brother. Now, you know, that sounds sort of idealistic, but strange to us. But, you know, that's the background for the temperance movement in America. If you've got a friend who has a problem with alcohol, so do you keep it in your house? No, you don't keep it in your house. This kind of other-orientedness, this is a little different than this. I read a manuscript the other day, recently, on Wesley's doctrine of perfection and its influence on his views on slavery. It was, one of the most, it was one of the most delightful things I think I've ever read. It was a thrill to read it. Because, you know, George Whitfield owned 50 slaves. Because in order to do the work of God, he needed those slaves in Georgia to run his uh, operation there. And Wesley said, no. And you know why Wesley said no? The doctrine of original sin made him opposed to slavery. Because he said, all of us are fallen. And we're, there's no goodness in any of us. And the black has fallen just like the white, but the white's fallen just like the black. And the black is as sinful as the white, and the white is as sinful as the black, and both of them need the same Jesus and the same blood atonement. Their need is exactly the same. They must be equal. That's an interesting way to get there, isn't it? But hold on. He said, according to the New Testament, a white man can be perfected in love, where God is the supreme love of his heart and the supreme joy of his heart. But he said, it doesn't say to us white men, black men can be perfected in love, so that their hearts are clean and their chief joy is the will of God and the love of God. Then if a black man can be perfected in love, the slave and his master can be perfected in love, how can one of them hold the other one in slavery? Now, that's a proper use of systematic theology. <laughs> and that's what you get in the book of Romans. You get what we call the systematic theology, and you get this conclusion that we call ethics and Christian morality. Oh, no. Oh, no. What you've got in this ethics is part of this theology. And if you separate the two, what you do is you sterilize it. It just isn't going to produce. And that's what we've done with this thing. We've stopped with this self-centered justification when the purpose of the book of Romans is to get us to the place where the love of Christ floods through us. Now, and it, it permeates that closing part of the book of Romans. And then he says in chapter 15, the beginning as we read, don't please yourself. <laughs> now, I, I don't know how to explain 
uh, Francis Asbury other than that text. Because if he'd had any interest in pleasing himself, he wouldn't have lived the way he lived. He didn't live for himself. He lived for Christ and for a, for a country that needed Christ. And so he poured himself out. So he says, you follow Christ. And what's the passage of scripture that he cites there? It's very interesting. He says, don't please yourself just as Christ did not please himself. And the text he uses is where he speaks and says, let me get it exactly. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. It took me a while. I had to live with that for a while before that made sense to me. But you know what he is saying? He's saying that Jesus said, the insults that they heaped on you, they became insults to me. The pain that they inflicted on you became pain to me. The shame that they poured out on you became my shame. So that your hurt became mine. Now that's what the cross is all about. Now, uh, I don't know about anybody else, but as I uh, read uh, that and deal with it, I feel that I'm dealing with a new kind of religion. and a complete religion where most of us have a partial religion. A complete salvation where most of us have a partial salvation. Just take, for instance, that line, avenge not yourself. How easy it is to uh, protect your reputation. Or if you have, you know, you can get between a husband and wife. Total candor? Or does your response when you've done something that uh, complicated matters, you get defensive? <laughs> uh, and what he is saying is, he, he, the, the person who has the divine love within doesn't get defensive about himself. I don't know how to explain a Corey Ten Boom or a George Bowen other than through a grace that can do that. Now, there's an interesting thing in Romans which I've seen which I had never noticed before. I, w I don't have the language to say care well what I want to say here, but let me see if I can inject the, uh, get the idea out for discussion. When did Paul write the book of Romans? The evidence is it was somewhere between 55 and 65. Now, what was happening in the world? between 55 and 65. Do you know what happened in 70 A.D.? The temple was destroyed. The sacrificial services, the sacrifices came to an end. The festivals as they had celebrated them stopped. If you want to call the religion of Israel 100 B.C. Judaism, Judaism went into absolute crisis. 
Now, how do you uh, keep the law when you can't have the proper festival in Jerusalem? And when there is no way to make a sacrifice? Now, Paul is moving into that end of the Old Testament legal system of worship. Now, don't scorn it. Paul never scorned it. But a change is taking place. And so he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. That troubled me for years. Why bodies? <laughs> uh, my heart he wants. My mind he wants. My spirit he wants. But the text says, present your bodies. So much. Okay. If you will read that, those two verses are loaded with sacrificial language. The very word present is the word which is used in uh, when Paul is speaking about, or where Jews who spoke Greek were speaking about sacrifices. To present anything, you'd presented it in the temple and you presented it as a sacrifice to God. So the word present is not just an ordinary word, it's a religious word. It is a cult word. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies... What did they present in the temple? Lambs, goats, bullocks. The heart of Jerusalem's worship was bodies. And I think Paul is saying, there's a shift taking place here. Now we move from the symbol to the reality. And if we get your body, he'll get your brain, because your brain's part of it. And he'll get your spirit, because you can't separate these two in this life. You'll get the person, because persons come in flesh. So he is saying, the individual person now is to be the sacrifice, not his gift. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, what? A living sacrifice. In the temple, you killed them. But in this one, you come alive. He wants us living sacrifices. That you may prove, test and prove, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what's he after? He's after us getting to the place where we're acceptable to God. I think Paul even felt that God... You could reach a place where God is pleased with you, where he's pleased with you. Now, what is it that pleases him? All this stuff I've been talking about up to now. When you don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. When you uh, love each other, outdo each other in loving the other. You bless those who persecute you. You don't curse them. You never return evil for evil. You never avenge yourself. If your enemy's hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him drink. If the government wants your money, you pay your taxes. You don't owe any man anything but love, divine love, agape love, which is that other-oriented love, 
It is not sanctified eros. It is agape. You don't live to yourselves. You live for others. You put on the Lord Jesus because that's what he did. And that's the only way you can. You don't hurt your weak brother with running over his scruples and boasting in your liberty. You, then he says, finally, you do not please yourself just as Christ did not please himself. Now, something new is taking place here. Now, the book of Romans supports that, the first part of the book of Romans. Because you will remember, he begins by saying, my purpose is that all the nations will be brought to the obedience of faith. It's believing something that is the key here. And he says, uh, the important thing is that you come to the place where uh, you worship God. Uh, you don't do the way the world is done, where when they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. But they worshiped the creature, put the creature in the place of the creator. And they went to reach the place where uh, they did not test to see if God was in their knowledge. It's an interesting text. It's it's verse 28. It's hard to translate. But the word is to test. So you test to see that God is in your knowledge. In other words, you work it. you, You find out whether he's in you or not. And if he's not there, you seek him until you find him. And if he is there, you give thanks. He says you don't live by self-interest. You come to the end of chapter 2, and he says, what we're after, what God is after, is the religion of the heart, inwardly. Look at look at 2, the closing paragraph in chapter 2. Circumcision, it's a passage where he speaks about circumcision. It has value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, it is nothing if there are uncircumcised people who keep the requirements of the law, it's interesting, one of the requirements of the law is circumcision. So how can an uncircumcised person keep the law? Uh, the reason is that what he's talking about is the deeper dimension of the law. And what is it? Love is the fulfilling of the law, that agape love. So then those who are physically circumcised but keep the law will condemn you that have the written code but break the law. For a person is not a Jew who is one on the outside, nor is true circumcision something external. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision, and he picks up an Old Testament theme here, uh, uh, real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal. Now, that's what the NRSV says. And I think it's a very unfortunate translation. Because what he is saying is, it is not of the pneuma, it is not of the spirit. And I think the spirit there needs to be capitalized. Now, some of the translations do capitalize it, but the NRSV doesn't. And so they make it a spiritual thing. But what he's talking about is that circumcision of the heart, the transformation of the heart, that only the Holy Spirit can produce inside a person. That is the first reference to the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans. Next, you get the tail end of chapter 3, which gives us a cross. And the two key words in that paragraph at the end of 3 are redemption and atonement. That Christ has provided a redemption for us and an atonement for our sins. 
the atonement so there is forgiveness and redemption so we are freed from the old shackles that have bound us. And then you come to chapter 4 and he says the illustration is Abraham who believed that God could do what he promised and make something where there was nothing and bring life where there had been death. And then you come to chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have access into this grace wherein we stand. And we have hope, and we can face suffering and so forth, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. How? The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I think that's what uh, Corey Ten Boom's talking about. When she faces that guard, stormtrooper, who says, Fraulein, God has forgiven me my sin. And all of the memory floods her. And the hatred rises the hostility, and at the same time the hostility rises within her. There's an inner voice that says, that's not right. You can't do that. You've got to be like me. You've got to forgive him. And she says, oh Christ, if I'm to forgive him, you've got to put that your forgiveness in me. And she says, I felt it raised down like fire through my arm into my hand as I took his hand and felt it entered into him. Now, I think that is what's involved in when he says, now you have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. You have access to God. And here you have his grace, and it means, as Ken Collins said, his favor. But more than that, it means power. And I think a case can be made that many of the references to grace in Paul are really references to the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, what does he do? The first thing Paul says is, he sheds, he pours out in abundance the love of Christ. Christ's love. So that it's not a heightening of my love, a heightening, a cleansing and a heightening of intensifying of my love. So I can do these things and other people say, how noble of you. That is a total misrepresentation, Paul. If you see it in any one of us, it's not there because of us. It's because we've done what Corrie ten Boom did. She said, Lord, if I'm to do this, you've got to put it in me. And then it is he and it is he alone that becomes the center there. But now the scripture indicates that uh, that is not for a privileged few. Under extreme circumstances, the extreme circumstances may be the places where it shows up. And when it shows up in extreme circumstances, it ought to be a conviction to us that what a man under extreme circumstances can do for Christ, maybe that's the daily provision that he wants to give to us. I think here of a story of Janine Braben, Boy, that uh, his father was killed by the by uh, the terrorists, the rebels, whatever they called them in Colombia. He uh, 
is left without a family and he's working uh, and he uh, rides his bike to work. One day he goes by bus and as the bus moves out toward the plantation or whatever they call it in Spanish where he is to work, the bus is taken over by the rebels and they take them off the path and then they tie all the riders together in threes with nylon rope. And he's tied between two women. And there they are all stretched out on the ground. And then they begin with their guns to mow through them and to kill them. And uh, as he becomes conscious that the two, the woman on each side of him is dead, he finds himself rising up and crying out, Oh, Jesus loves you. You don't have to do this. And a bullet catches him in his left eye, circles his skull, comes out the right eye, and an inner voice says, lie down, you're going to live. He's now in her Hebrew class <laughs> and is a, a servant of Christ. Here he is in the midst of death, and there's something in hatred, and there's the inner thing within says, you don't have to do this, Jesus loves you. Now, why does he do that? How does he do that? That's not heightened human love. That's divine love. Now, when Paul says, now you believe, and the love of God, that love, that kind of love, which is the love between the three persons of the Holy Trinity, that does not love because of the nature of the object, but loves in spite of it. It's interesting, now I find this theme in a whale of a lot of places in Paul and developed. You know the famous, well-known passage, the love of Christ constrains us. For we thus judge that if one dies, we all have died, and he died for us for what purpose? I've heard a lot of sermons on the love of Christ constraining us because Christ died for us. Well, why did he die for us? So that we who live should no longer live for ourselves, but live for him who gave himself for us. So that Second Corinthians 5, that incredible passage that ends with, he became sin for us who knew no sin, in order that we might be made the righteousness of God. The heart of that passage fits with Romans 12, 13, 14, 15. Why should I think that 12, 13, 14, 15 is a tack-on to Romans instead of what Romans is all about? Or take, as we said, the passage about the mind of Christ. Or if you'll take the passage in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10 and the beginning of chapter 11, where he's dealing with the battles in the church at Corinth over scruples and eating meat and so forth. And uh, are you aware of this text? I've never heard it preached on. But uh, if I were a pastor, I think I would have to preach on this text. Where he says, all things are lawful. There's nothing evil in itself. It's only the misuse of good. That's evil. All things are lawful. That doesn't mean everything is beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build. 
or edify. Do not seek your own advantage. And you know what the Greek says? Do not seek the things of yourself. Do not seek the things for you, he says, but that of the other, that other-orientedness. He comes to the conclusion of that, and he speaks about himself. He says, uh, uh, so whether you eat uh, or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Does that fit with Romans 15? Don't please yourself. Just as Christ did not please himself. Paul's theme, he's consistent throughout his writings on these things. Not seeking my own advantage, the things of myself, but that of many so they may be saved. And then he says this incredible thing, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I ran across a book by a Lutheran bishop by the name of Anders Negrin called Agape and Eros. In it, he deals with how radical the understanding of love was that Paul had. That it is not a cleansing of human love, it is the impartation of a divine love. And that the two are not the same. There is a difference in them. He gives four characteristics for agape. One is that it's spontaneous or unmotivated. Now, what he is saying is that its origin is not in the context. Its origin is in the divine heart. God doesn't look down and say, I like this guy. God doesn't look down even and say, he needs me. And so because of that, it's not the condition of the object that makes God love. God loves because he is love. Okay. The second thing he he speaks of is, as a result, the love of God is indifferent to value. So you go to the upper class, or the middle class, or the lower class. You don't go because of the nature of the persons you're going to. You go because of the divine nature that's within you. That means you go to everybody. And there's no differentiation. And so you get Francis Asbury stopping to talk to Punch. Don't you love that story? He's the one who sits down at George Washington's table. You see, it's it's what's in here that determines it, not what the nature of the person out there. Now this I love. He says, agape is always creative. Okay? So, it's creative. <laughs> and, he says, last of all, it initiates, his language is, initiates koinonia with God. If his love comes in you, then you're part of him. Because he is love. Now, let me tell you where this uh, hit me. A couple of things, and we have a lot of stuff there. But, uh, you know, this is the thing that, of course, differentiates Christianity from Islam and from Judaism. Because, you see, in, in Judaism, love is something the God of Judaism does. 
And in Islam, if Allah loves, it's something he does. But with the God of Scripture and the triune Godhead, it's not what he does, it's who he is, it's his nature. Now, if it's his nature, then, you know, that has changed my whole view of the crucifixion. You see, they stretch him out on that cross, and they drive a spike through one hand. And he's as human as you and I are. His pains were the same as yours would be and mine would be. Every cell in his body was screened. From a human point of view, you'd do anything to avoid adding anything to that. The guy stretches out the other hand and lifts the spike and the mallet. Now, how's he going to respond to that guy? Does he make a choice, a decision to love him? No, I have to do that. Can you say this about God? He doesn't have any option. That's who he is. So his relationship to the guy who's getting ready to put the second spike in him is love. Now, it's holy love. That's another story, but it's not sentiment. It's not our understanding of love. It's divine. But he loves. And he can't keep from loving. Because that's who he is. That doesn't mean that he overlooks our sin. No, that makes him deal the more honestly with our sin. Doesn't mean that he uh, condones evil. Makes him more hostile to evil. But his nature is love. And you know, as I think of that, I think of the close of the Jesus uh, high priestly prayer. You know, I, I think how many years I lived where the 17th chapter of John meant about nothing to me. I knew it. I read it. But it just didn't, didn't touch me. I can remember while we were at the college, we had Dr. McFeeders, the president of the seminary, or president emeritus at that time, preach. And so he stands up, man in his 80s, and he quoted John 17 from beginning to end. And as I sat there, I hate to tell you, inwardly I thought, that's nice. But it, it didn't move me a whit. Well, one day I discovered the, t- the closing paragraph of the uh, 17th chapter of his high priestly prayer. He says, now, Father, I don't pray for these alone. I pray for those who will believe after them. So I realized I was in that prayer. Now, what's he praying for me? He says, I pray, not for Dennis Kenlaw, but he says, I pray for them. Now, we get our individuality from God. But it's not individuality and isolation. Persons always come in clusters. So he says, I pray for them. That they may be one. Even as you, Father, and I are one. Now, how are they one? The Son is the only being begotten Son. So while he's praying for us, he's drawing his life out of his Father. What's his Father doing? His Father's giving his life to him. And so he says, I pray that they may be one. So I draw life from you and I give my life to you. I assume that's what he's saying. So he says, 
that they may be one as we are one. Why? So that the world may know that you have sent me. In other words, what he's saying is so that the world can know who Jesus is. Now, how's the world going to know who Jesus is? When you and I come to the place where this kind of relationship exists between us, and it is a relationship in Christ, in the love of God, and it is not just simply a human relationship, but we come together and that same divine presence is in you that's in me, and we're one and we belong to each other. And so, we can esteem each other more highly than ourselves. Love creates value in the other person. Now, uh, does that make a difference? It's interesting if you will read Corrie Ten Boom's story. Uh, the inner atmosphere in parts of that concentration camp changed because of Corrie Ten Boom and her sister. An atmosphere began to change. Because they were there and they let Christ pour his love through them. And you know, it's always an effective witness. I remember when I was young, I was preaching in a church here in Kentucky. The church was out in a pasture. And I preached one night on Saul and Samuel, where God had told Saul to make the offering, and he'd save the best of the sheep. And so Samuel has come to rebuke him. And so I was being as dramatic as I could. Samuel turns to Saul and says, What's that I hear? And in the windows that were open in the summer came, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> but in that little church, it was interesting. There was a family. The woman who for many years was a librarian at Asbury came out of that church and came from one of the families. Sheehan family. I got to know the Sheehan family. Mr. Sheehan, in a Methodist revival, had an experience of heart purity. That cleansing from self-interest and the love of God was poured into it. So in due time, they got a new preacher. And the first time he was going to be there was a Wednesday night. And so Mr. Sheehan turned to his wife and said, go to the smokehouse and get the biggest ham in the smokehouse because we've got to welcome our new preacher and let him know that we love him. And uh, so <laughs> Mrs. Sheehan went to the smokehouse and got the biggest ham, put it in the back of the buggy, that's how far back, and they went. the family went to church. The new preacher was there, he began the service and began getting acquainted with the people, and so he opened it up for sharing. And Mr. Sheehan stood and told about the day that God cleansed his heart. He'd been a Christian for a number of years. God cleansed his heart of that self-interest and filled him with the very love of God. And he used the old Methodist language of sanctification. 
And the preacher turned red and spun on him and said, I don't want to hear that word ever uttered in this church again. That is not what you're going to be hearing preached, and we don't believe in that stuff here. And Mr. Frank sat down. <laughs> when they came out of the church, the kids all were watching him <laughs> and waiting. <laughs> and when they got toward the buggy, one of them said, Daddy, what are you going to do with the ham? <laughs> he said, what do we bring it for? Get it for me. And he took the ham and carried it to the pastor and said, Pastor, we want to thank God for sending us a shepherd for our soul. And so we brought you a love gift. <laughs> and we want you to know that we're grateful that you're here. And we're going to be praying for you. Pastor didn't know what to say. <laughs> what would you have said? <laughs> so Mr. Sheehan got in his buggy and went with his family home. Later that week, they looked out at the lane and saw a buggy coming in. And it was a strange buggy. And when it got into the front yard, the man that got out, to their surprise, was their pastor. <laughs> And he came in and he said, Mr. Frank, I want to apologize to you for what I did on Wednesday night. He said, if what you've got can make you act like that, as long as I'm pastor of this church, you can testify to anything you want to testify to. Now, let me ask you, what if we lived according to Romans 12, 13, 14, 15? that live. I think that's what the book of Romans is about. It's about grace that can transform a person to where he lives, not for himself or his own interest, but for others and the love of God. Not his own love. That divine love flows through him. Because the only thing saving is God. It's not you and me at our best. And that Radical line between the human and the divine. We fudge. And we meld them, try to meld them together. And when we meld them together, we always lose the divine. Now, uh, that's a long time saying what I wanted to say. But uh, I dare you to read Romans with that in mind. And you'll find it makes six significant. Because dead to sin, dead to what sin? Self-interest. Uh, eight, you live in the spirit. You don't live in the flesh. You don't live for yourself. What spirit do you live in? The one who pours out agape into your heart. And nine, ten, and eleven. What are you going to do with the Jews? Who is Israel? They're the people Paul has experienced just crucified his Savior. And God says, I have to deal with their sin. Behold the severity and the mercy of God. It's interesting he put them together. Behold the mercy and the severity of God. They're together because he has to deal with sin. So they're cut out of the vine. 
But do you know what 9, 10, and 11 says to me now? God can't get them out of his heart. They're out of the redemptive process, but they're not out of God's heart. And so you get to chapter 11, and he's working every string he can pull to get them back in, and he says they're coming back. And he says, you Gentiles, if you don't stay in the vine, you'll get cut out. But uh, I, I love it. He has to let the temple be destroyed. Let the sacrifices stop. Because God is not there. And if, if he's not there, the symbols don't belong there. But at the same time, they're not in the vine, but they're still in his heart. Why? Because of who he is. His nature. His love. Now, uh, my prayer for myself is, Lord, I'd like to live that way. <laughs> and if there's grace available, and I don't live that way, then it's because I've refused your grace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's wonderful. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we've received access, access to God, access into that grace wherein we stand. And what is that grace? It's that divine work of the Spirit. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if over the last 40 years all the talk about the Holy Spirit had told about agape? I've come to the conclusion that any discussion of the Holy Spirit that doesn't end in an emphasis on other-oriented sacrificial love, agape, He's not really talking about the same spirit as the one that is in the triune Godhead.